Well, good morning, everyone. Let's begin with prayer. Blessed Lord, who caused all holy scriptures to be written for our learning, grant us so to hear them, read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest them, that by patience and the comfort of your holy word, we may embrace and ever hold fast the blessed hope of everlasting life, which you have given us in our Savior, Jesus Christ, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen. All right, well, again, uh, it's good to be with you. Uh, my name is Alex Fogelman. I'm a lay catechist here, and I'll be um, working with Father Nicholas, doing, facilitating, teaching this catechesis class over the next few weeks. Um, and it's a great joy to, to do that. Um, so I look forward to um, getting to know you more. And the nature of catechesis is questions and answers. And so there's an inherently dialogical um, you know, Socratic element to, to this whole process. So um, I hope we can, I hope that some of that, that dialogical aspect comes into play. Um, so we have two more weeks of this catechesis, uh, this week and then next week. Next week is Palm Sunday. And then we won't have catechesis during Easter. And then the week following Easter, um, the bishop will be here for confirmations. And so... Um, in many ways, catechesis, um, if you haven't been confirmed and you've been through uh, this catechesis course for the first time and that's what you're aiming for, uh, then that's coming up and that's very exciting. Um, is, there, is there anybody that's on that track in here? Anybody's on the confirmation track? Yes, 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 excellent. Um, do you remember what confirmation means? If only we had a book with questions and answers uh, that says. So you would have got, you guys would have talked about this a few few weeks ago. So who, who can tell me what confirmation is? Yeah. You can read aloud, or you can, or you can, you can glance at it. So here's what you can do: you can glance at it, and you're like, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, and then close the book, and then tell me. Can you do that? Maybe. Oh, you're you're shielding your eyes now. Okay. I can always call on Taylor. I know he'll he's he's ready with a quick answer, and he's not looking at his book. I don't think. Okay. What's confirmation, Taylor? You've got you've got ten minutes. So no, just kidding. Ten. 15 seconds. Yes, so it's, it's specifically, there's, um, you have the laying on the hand of the bishop, 
right, is specifically the bishop that lays hands um, for this strengthening by the Holy Spirit. That is literally what confirmation means, a with firming. <laughs> um, and it's um, not that, that yeah, the Holy Spirit wasn't given to you in baptism, right? <laughs> we got that. <laughs> um, but there is a, there's, always, always more, always a strengthening, always a confirming, always an increase of, of the work that the Holy Spirit can do. So that's what this, this sacrament, um, this rite, is specifically geared toward. And I think thinking of it as something like, you know, um, an ordination, a lay ordination, a sort of blessing over you now that you've, uh, whether you're baptized as an, as an infant or whether you were baptized last week, um, there is, there's an additional sort of active ministering that confirmation calls you to do. So I think thinking of it in terms of ministry and mission, um, I think are very helpful ways to, to think about that. So um, excited for those who are, who are on that track and are aiming towards that in just a few weeks, and, and that'll be wonderful. I'm sure there'll be more, more to come with um, Father Nicholas and Father Jonathan about preparing for that. So anyway, that is wonderful, and um, coming up, in just a couple of weeks. So we'll meet this week and next week, Easter, confirmation, and then we'll be back with um, the Ten Commandments. So n- now that you've been confirmed, now you can know what it means to live in charity and the love of the Lord. So, <laughs> good. Well, I believe you guys left off in the good hands of Father Nicholas last week talking about Scripture. So if my... I wasn't here last week, but if my hearing of the internet was correct, you guys are on question 229, right? Um, so we will, we're, this is in this section on crafting a rule, or not crafting, this is a section on a rule of prayer, um, and it has three components, scripture, prayer, and worship. These are all, interestingly, aspects of a rule of prayer, right? All of these are crafting a regular, a regularizing, that's what this word rule means, regular, a rule, or canon. Um, it's this way of shaping, crafting a life, providing guardrails, providing um, structure, providing, it's kind of like a, like a trellis that you use to help plants grow. This is providing this kind of structure. That's kind of what a rule, a rule is about. <clears throat> so you've talked about a rule of prayer. And then the first of these three legs of a rule of prayer is uh, the rule of Scripture. And so these set of questions from 227 to 232 are not just about Scripture in general, right? You remember way back when, one of the first questions, even before we talked, got into the creed, one of the questions was on Scripture, you know, sort of what is Scripture? But this set of questions... Um, is basically expositing this wonderful prayer that's often in, um, or it's set for, I think, the second week of Advent, this collect about um, studying scriptures. And it invites us into a particular kind of reading scripture, right? There's all sorts of ways that we can and do read, um, but not all sorts of readings are appropriate for any sort of situation, right? Um, our you know, college professors in the room will, will remind us that they see many forms of reading that their students do, 
right? You read the back of a cereal box one way, and then you read Dante in another way, right? There's, there, are, there are fitting ways of reading certain kinds of texts. Right? I'm thinking of you, <laughs> our English professor in the room. Um, there are different kinds of ways, uh, different kinds of uh, forms, or habits, patterns of reading um, that are appropriate. And so there are with Scripture. And so what these questions here are doing are guiding our habits of reading Scripture. Um, so we've talked about how Scriptures shape a life, how you should hear Scriptures. Let's go to question 229. How should you read the Bible? I should read the Bible daily, following the church's set readings, lectionaries, or following a pattern of my own choosing. So this invites us, first of all, to read the Bible daily, um, not just haphazardly or whenever you feel like it, but this calls us into, again, if we're thinking of a, of a, a rule here as a regularizing device, a shaping device, this isn't like a rule as in, like, you must do this or else, uh, you know, Father Jonathan's going to be mad at you. Um, this is a rule thinking about how, what, what would an, an ideal life of reading be like? It would be one immersed daily in the scriptures, right? So, but how do you do that, right? Some sort of guide is helpful. You have this very large book, right? and I just kind of plop it down on you, and I say, just read it daily. You know, good luck. <laughs> um, no, there are guides, there are ways into reading Scripture, and really the, the catechism itself is a guide into reading Scripture. It's a way to help you read Scripture well. That's one of the things that it's aimed to do. Um, but more broadly, we think about a guide for daily reading of Scripture in the lectionary from lectio, meaning just reading. So the church has um, two forms of lectionary readings. There are the set of readings that we read every Sunday, right, that goes through the Bible in three years. Right? There's kind of a three-year pattern to that. And then there is the, um, in the Book of Common Prayer, the daily uh, readings for morning and evening prayer. And we'll talk about those in later questions. This later, uh, next week, we'll probably talk about the daily office and what these kind of are. But what the daily office is basically designed to do is get you reading and praying scriptures daily. And, and this invites you, if you do morning and evening prayer, you end up reading through the whole scriptures in a year. So it guides you into, okay, there's this big book. How do I, how do I encounter it? How do I actually read it? Well, this gives you a select passages of writings that you can then uh, read and, and study on a daily basis. So that's how we read the Bible. Okay, well, what else can we do? Question 230. How should you mark passages of Scripture? I should study the Bible attentively, noting key verses and themes, as well as connections between passages in the Old and New Testaments, I should study on my own and with other Christians, using trustworthy commentaries and other resources to grasp the full meaning of God's word. Okay, tons of stuff uh, going on in this question. First of all, so you can read the scriptures, 
you know, you read them daily. Say so you open up the, the Book of Common Prayer and it tells you to read, you know, a chapter from the Old Testament, one of the Psalms, and a chapter from the New Testament. That's roughly what a lectionary is kind of set out, set, sets out to do. Okay, you read that, but what, is, what does it mean to read? <laughs> uh, what does it mean to mark these, these passages? You could just let your eyes glaze over them. You know, you could read like you read at the back of the cereal box, right? You could read with that level of attention. Um, but I think we, we have some intuition that scriptural reading calls forth a more attentive reading. Um, so this uses this language of mark, mark my words, right? That kind of focus, a kind of um, attentiveness, a kind of care that we uh, read this text. So we read attentively, noting key verses and themes, right? What sort of themes start to stand out? Themes are these ideas that you start to see repeated over and over. So if you start reading about um, a lamb who is... Um, who Abraham finds in a bush and is called to sacrifice. Uh, and then you start reading about a lamb uh, in the um, Moses' uh, prescriptions for Old Testament worship. Um, and then you start reading about Christ as a lamb. John the Baptist saying, behold, the lamb of God. Well, these are, you're marking here. You're marking these themes, words. In particular here, um, passages between the Old and New Testaments. And this is, uh, you know, an important way in which the whole Bible is pointing us towards one thing, towards Christ. So we've got lots of Old Testament in here and a little bit of New Testament, right? Um, This isn't quite going to give the actual visual picture, but roughly, you know, roughly this is Old Testament and this is New Testament, right? So there's more of one than the other, and you might think, well, we don't see Christ until the New Testament. So, I don't know, just Taylor's, Taylor's groaning inside. He's like, you don't see Christ until the New Testament, so what, you know, <laughs> why bother with all this, this Old Testament stuff? Like, why am I reading about, you know, what Moses said we should do in, in the tabernacle or how many cubits the, you know, such and such was? You know, why are, why are you reading that? Well, that's because, you know, we live in a culture that's taught us to think of time in, his, in a very historical, linear way and not to think about Christ as actually present and active in the New Testament, right? If we're... If we're sort of Nicene Christians, and we think there was never a time when the sun was not, then, well, we should be looking for Christ all over the place in the Old Testament. Um, that's what the New Testament writers do. They point, they point us towards Christ everywhere present in the New Testament. And so this sort of, um, what we might think of as a, as a Christological lens of reading Scripture, is going to help us train our vision, train our reading towards reading Christ in the Old and New Testament, looking for these connections, looking for um, these, these passages. Our, um, you can, if you're so inclined to just reading around in your catechism, you can flip back to question 29 that asks a great question relevant to this 
discussion, it asks, how are the Old and New Testaments related to each other? Yeah, good, good question. Thank you for asking. Um, the Old Testament is to be read in light of Christ, and the New Testament is read in light of God's revelation to Israel. The two form one holy scripture. As St. Augustine says, for whom there is you know, almost no greater authority, uh, the new is in the old concealed, right? The New Testament, Christ, is concealed, hidden, as it were, in the Old Testament. And the old is in the new, revealed. Uh, the word apocalypse, you know, the, we saw the revelation to St. John. The word apocalypse means a, a revelation, an unveiling. We see there's, and this is essentially what these related terms like mystery or, or even the word sacrament, right? All of these words and they have to do with this idea that there's something, a reality present in hiddenness, in mystery. And with Christ reading the scriptures in the church, we have an unveiling, a um, calling forth what is what is really there uh, beneath the surface. This is sometimes what's called um, figurative reading or spiritual reading of the Bible, reading with spirit-led um, eyes. Um, there's so there's not a lot of uh, language to get at this. Uh, what kind of reading is demanded when we are reading the Bible attentively? Um, and then it, this question goes on. We can read with others. We can read on our own. We can read, you can study the word. But the, the point, in fact, is to find various ways of delving deeper into, into the scriptures. So that's one thing we might say about uh, when it says to read, mark, and learn uh, the scriptures. Marking is this, this noting of particular themes, particular connections and passages, right? Okay, let's keep going. Question 231, how should you learn the Bible? I should seek to know the whole sweep of Scripture and to memorize key passages for my own spiritual growth and for sharing with others. Okay, so you're, you're marking Scripture, right? You're reading it, but your eyes aren't just glazing over it. You're marking Scripture. You're noting key themes, Old Testament, New Testament connections. Um, and then next, this is inviting us into a further stage of learning, okay? Learning scriptures, and the emphasis here is on memory, right? We're, we're bringing these things, start to, starting to bring these things, what is outside of us, what begins in, in the reading of scripture publicly, in hearing the word, reading with our eyes the words on the page, and we're starting to mark them. Maybe we're taking notes, maybe you're um, maybe you're reading commentaries, that sort of thing. But we're not just leaving it there. We are seeking to let these words become part of who we are. We're, we're learning the scriptures. We're assimilating them. We're bringing the, the words into our very beings. <clears throat> so what does this mean? There's two kinds of, there's a kind of a general and a particular aspect of what this question is getting at. So on the one hand, we want to have a sense of learning the whole sweep of scriptures. We want to have some general coherent sense of what is the beginning of the story, right? How do things get started? What happens in the middle, 
and there's a lot that happens in the middle. <laughs> um, but we want to have some, some concept of the story of Israel, right? God's calling of Abraham out of the land of, of the Chaldeans to form a people for his name. Um, and then after, after Abraham come the patriarchs, right? And then on into Israel is enslaved in Egypt, right? And God sends forth these great kings and David and Solomon. Well, then what happens after that? They go into exile, right? And then from exile, there is the calling forth of the Messiah, right? Sending of the Son of God. Um, and then, so we, we've got this a broadly narrative sweep of, of history. <clears throat> and this is, this is, again, helping shape how we read in particular passages. So we're learning the whole sweep of scriptures. And then as well, another way, that's one way of learning scripture in the sense that we're talking about here. And then the other way is just a good old-fashioned memorizing scripture verses, right? Some people come from you know, families and households that, that did this kind of thing. Um, others of us didn't, and that's fine. And <laughs> no matter where you are, what sort, of, what sort of age or stage or however you think that your memory is, there's always space um, for, for memorizing Scripture. And there's no sort of uh, substitute for letting these, letting these words become a part of you, becoming a part of your memory, becoming a part of the way that you, you actually think, the way that you, you act, the way that you... The way that you do things. Um, oh. Folks who teach um, poetry tell me that you, you, you don't quite understand a poem un, until it's memorized, right? You begin to, to start to see things that, that you would have you know, never have seen before. You, you see stuff on the 100th reading of a thing you know, more than you see on, on the first reading. So there's a way in which assimilating these scriptures into memory like there's no other way of sort of learning scripture like, like there is in memorizing scripture. So again, we, um, we don't think much of memorizing today. We're like, I've got this on my phone. I can look it up, look it up that passage whenever I want to, right? It's not the same as, as having it there, having it internal to you, having it uh, in the heart. Right? So there's ways that we, that we read, mark, learn, uh, and now let's go, let's go to question 232. How should you inwardly digest Scripture? I should meditate on Scripture and let it shape my thoughts and prayers. As I absorb Scripture, it deepens my knowledge of God, becomes the lens through which I understand my life and the world around me, and guides my attitudes and actions. Okay, so now we're going, we're getting the words from off the page. We're marking them, we're noting them, we're starting to learn them, we're starting to memorize them, right? This is all of a very you know, active stage of, of the reading scripture process. This question gestures to, to what, I've, what I've been talking about in this sense of getting the scriptures deep down into you, letting them be a part of who you are. This... Um, the metaphor of digesting uh, here is a great uh, biblical metaphor, right? Isaiah um, is told, or Ezekiel is told to, to eat 
the book, right? And then this is picked up in uh, the Revelation to, to St. John. Um, the angel comes to John and says, eat this book, right? Uh, and then he says, it's not going to be always just like happy news for you, right? This word is going to be bitter <laughs> in you, right? And um, it's going to, um, it, may, it may disrupt things for you. It may do things for you that you're like, I wasn't planning on this. I just wanted like some nice scripture to make me feel good and get through my day. Um, but no, the word uh, digesting, dwelling in us is, um, is, a, is a process of, of literally transforming who we are. Um, and sort of classical cultures, many for whom the biblical writers would, would think this, you know, you consume food, something external to your body, right? And then it literally becomes part of who you are, right? Those nutrients in there, whatever the, whatever the stuff that makes up food, that literally becomes part now of your physical constitution. Right? Think about this when we uh, partake the Eucharist. We can also think about this in terms of, of how we read Scripture. There's a sense in which Scripture uh, dwells in us. We digest it. We meditate on it. Um, and it shapes, as, as this question says, um, it shapes my thoughts in my prayers. Right? You, you've probably already noticed that in your in your own life, um, you sort of pray differently than you did, what if you say, a year ago, five years ago, 20 years ago. Uh, and with a deepening of Scripture, you find that your, your own prayers, your own thoughts, start to take on a biblical shape. You begin to think and speak in terms of um, the language of the Bible. God's Word is becoming a part of who you are. And I don't mean this what um, uh, Eugene Peterson would call uh, speaking Christianese, right? <laughs> it's like Christian language as, as like a special language, like, you know, when we say, you know, I'm just going to be like the word fellowshipping as a verb. You know, here he is this. I'm going to be just fellowshipping with my, uh, with my brothers here. And that, you know, there's a kind of way in which you can use Christian language to just sound pious or sound Christian in a way that can, can be alienating. So we're not talking about that. We're talking about a way in which you begin to, you know, your very sort of patterns of thought begin to be shaped by not just biblical words, but these biblical narratives, the themes of Scripture, the themes of salvation, of of justice of mercy, um, the way in which God uh, calls Israel out of, out of Egypt um, uh, and into a land of promise. Like all of these, it's, it's more than just, than just you know, using biblical words. It's about these words shaping uh, how you think. A good, I think a good example of this is, um, is uh, you know, the prophet Jonah, right? So Jonah in the whale, right? Swallowed by a whale, as as happens to people, you know. Um, and what does he do? What does he do? Who remembers what what Jonah does in the whale? <laughs> he he prays, right? He has this great um, this uh, this wonderful prayer. Let's see if I can how quickly I can get to it. Probably not very. Um, but he prays essentially what sounds like a psalm, 
like the words of it are, they sound just like a psalm, but then you start to, you start to ask, well, where, what psalm is this? What psalm um, is this? And what you come to see is so in Jonah chapter 2, then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish. I called to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and thou didst hear my voice, for thou didst cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood was round about me. All the waves and thy billows passed over me. Right, and he goes on, and he goes on like this. And you're like, this sounds just like one of the Psalms. And that's because it, it is, but it's like a variation of all different kinds of Psalms. Right? What you start to, th- to realize is that, that Jonah has assimilated the language, the prayers of the Psalms into his very speech. So that when he's, you know, circumstances of all circumstances, followed by a whale, <laughs> the, what comes out of him is not like, you know, what I would say, which is like stuff I can't say in church, you know. It's like what, <laughs> what he says is biblical language, right? He is formed in the habits of of the Psalms. He's formed in the habits of speech that allow him to, when the pressure's on, when he's squeezed, when he's in the belly of, of the whale, he, what comes out is prayer, and particularly the prayers of the Psalms. And so I think that's a wonderful sort of image of what it looks like for someone to be inwardly digesting <laughs> scriptures. When you digest the scriptures in that way, that's what, that's what comes forth to just extend this uh, metaphor maybe a little too far. Um, so anyway, uh, another way in which the tradition has come to think about this way of reading scripture is what's often called Lectio Divina. So Lectio, again, reading, Divina, divine, a kind of holy reading, scriptural uh, sanctified reading of scripture. And this is formulated, this goes, uh, the sort of seeds of this idea are very early in the tradition, but it takes shape in uh, medieval uh, tradition, most famously by a, a great um, monk named Guigo II. Guigo II. So any of you guys like thinking about children's names, Guigo II. Regardless if you're, if you're Guigo I, go Guigo II. Works every time. But he wrote a book called The Ladder, something like The Ladder of Monks, something like that. Um, and in it, he articulates uh, these, this, he uses this ladder image, right? Uh, the monks love ladders. They're just always climbing up and down ladders. Uh, and, and he develops this, this image of, there's kind of four what he would call rungs on the ladder. Um, and the first one is reading, right, as we've been talking about. You read, you learn to read, you attend to the words, you attend to the historical context, you attend to the new, uh, you know, you attend to the words. You read, learn, you're learning to read. Well, next he says you, you meditate. Meditate on, on scripture. And this is what, what we mean by memorizing. So we, you start to make those Old and New Testament connections. You start to dwell on the word. You start to chew on the word. Uh, and you let these let the word dwell in you richly, uh, as Paul writes. Um, and then from um, meditating, the third rung on the, on the ladder is what, what he calls is prayer, oratio. 
So from learning to, and that's what we'll be talking about next in the catechism, from um, learning to, to meditate, then you enter into Scripture. You start to pray Scripture. Scripture becomes the language that you use to communicate with God, right? How does God communicate with us? Through many ways, of course, many and various ways. Um, and primarily, though, through the Word. God speaks to us through the Word. Well, how might we answer back? Also through the Word, right? This becomes a sort of means of communication, a channel by which we encounter God. So we pray. So prayer is answering speech. But we're answering speech in God's, God's kind of language, right? And then the fourth, uh, the fourth rung on the ladder, so to speak, is what he calls contemplation. So from, from reading to meditation to prayer, uh, and then finally contemplation. Contemplation is something like dwelling, resting in the word, um, inhabiting the word. Again, this idea of letting the word shape uh, your thoughts and attitudes and, and actions. Um, deepening your knowledge of God, becoming the lens through which I understand my life and the world around me, and guiding my attitudes and actions. So these are all, these are, you know, what we're trying to get at when we're thinking about what is the rule of prayer. Again, thinking about all this in the context of rule of prayer, Scripture is our first way into this rule of prayer. Um, so let's pause here. What kind of questions are brewing? Uh, what, are you, what are you meditating on and dwelling on here? What sort of questions are arising for you in this, in this section? Besides, what's that sound? You know. <laughs> what are you saying, Lord? <laughs> Fix the air conditioning. No. Questions on this, or, or um, encounters with this way of reading. Is this a foreign kind of reading? Is this, um, how, does, how does this line up with the way that you've primarily encountered the scriptures? Or how have you primarily encountered scripture? There are some different ways that you encounter scripture. Mm. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, we've we've met people, you know, especially if you've if you've you know lived in the South, who <laughs> a culture that's, that's been trained in Scripture but can wield it like a weapon. You know, people can use Scripture like a, like a weapon to take a verse and to use it, um, use it against someone, <laughs> basically. So, yeah, I think that, that's absolutely right. Reading, um, reading Scripture uh, in this kind of way, reading it... Um, both reading the, the historical context and reading the narrative context, right? Understanding what's going on in the story. You do start to develop a sort of sensibility. I think it's 
probably the best way to say it, you develop a sense, um, an, an instinct almost about, you'll, you'll hear uh, someone say something um, and you're like, that, that doesn't sound quite right, right? Um, and part of that developing that, that instinct is very much, it's, it's both a, a, a negative and a positive. On the negative side, you can say, mm, that doesn't, it, it starts to send off those, those bells. That, that doesn't sound right. Um, but then the, the positive side of that is that you, you start to see new connections uh, in the scriptures that, that you may not have seen before. It opens up um, new ways of, of encountering God uh, in the scriptures. Um, yeah, that, that sort of deep work of both reading wide you know, you want to develop the width of, of reading and inhabiting the scriptures in this broadly, the whole sweep kind of reading, but then also going going deep, meditating, memorizing the, these scriptures. Yeah, that's good. Yeah. Anything else on reading? Yeah, Taylor. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> mm, yeah. Yeah. Right. Very clear picture of of the ends of, of reading scripture, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, there's all sorts of things when you say reading the Bible in context, right? There's that alone is not enough to give us give us much guidance. We need a kind of a little more specific understanding of what we mean by context, and specifically both an orientation, a starting point, right, and reading in the, the sort of whole scope of the scriptures, um, and then also the sort of end, end goal, the telos, what's it pointing towards. Right. These are all all the ways that what it means to read the Bible in context can can have for us. Yeah. Good. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. 
Right, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, sure. So there's lots of, um, now more than ever, just a proliferation of translations, right? So uh, in, the, in the Western church for, you know, since Jerome's translation of the Bible into Latin um, up until the later, later Middle Ages and the Reformation, everyone read, there, there wasn't a, this was not a question, <laughs> right? This was the scriptures are of course there's going to be local variations and you know scribes doing doing things that scribes do but for the most part you're not wondering about you know different translations we introduce vernacular readings of scripture um, and you start to have a german you know luther translates the bible into german and changes german culture etc um, and for the longest time in the english tradition there is the king james version the 1611 the king james and again, while you've got vernaculars, you've still got one primary, one primary language in which you, you hear scripture. That is not the case today. <laughs> you can go to uh, Christian stores, if there, if there are still any around, and, and find just hundreds of different translations. And the, most broadly, the translations are going to range from um, what people think of as either it's not quite right to say more literal versus more paraphrasing, but some they'll try to either do like more of a word-for-word -word translation versus a kind of phrase-for-phrase -phrase translation. So something like the NRSV or ESV are going to try to do more word-for-word -word translations, whereas something like the NIV is going to do a more phrase-by-phrase -phrase translation. And then there are things like uh, Eugene Peterson's The Message that's going to be um, what would be called a paraphrase rather than, than a translation. So there's, roughly speaking, there's probably more you can say about that, but roughly speaking, there's this kind of three categories, word for word, phrase for phrase, paraphrase. And I think there's lots of, lots of value to all those. I mean, why Eugene Peterson wrote that, wrote the message, was so that people would read, would learn the whole scope of scripture. Like he wrote it, and when he told people to read the Bible, he says, the first thing you should do is just read through the Bible twice. Just start to finish. Read it fast. <laughs> You're like, what? <laughs> well, I'm supposed to read it slow and meditate and do all these pious things that, like the monks do. He's like, no, just read it through. Read it through fast. Because he thought you needed to have that whole scope of Scripture. And doing that, being able to read it fast, will allow you to do that. So that would be the benefit of a paraphrase. It can allow you to read the whole thing fast. If, you're, if you've ever been one of those people that's like, have you ever met those people that like, oh, I tried to read the Bible once and um, you know, I made it to Genesis 10 and I was just, I couldn't understand it. <laughs> right? You have the, this, this kind of thing. So Eugene Pearson's trying to paraphrase the Bible so that people could get past Genesis 10. Um, the other thing I'll say, so there's, there's three different ways. We typically use with the, the ESV uh, translation the English Standard Version. I don't know, because we like English things. Um, but um, I think the main thing I would say, so there's virtues in each of the different you know, translations of, of Scripture, and they are, they're doing different things, and people are, are very much more attentive to the sort of 
you can't just have a sort of pure reading of scripture. You're always going to have some interpretation in the translation, right? And these are all translations that are done by by people that are more or less intelligent than than Taylor is, you know. So there's different ranges of people. Um, Taylor's a friend, so that's why I pick on him. Um, but so these are these are all done. These are you know the work of people that are trying to translate, interpret the word faithfully, and, and all this stuff. Um, I would say for the I'd say the most important thing I would I would say for what we're talking about here in developing a rule of scripture is to use the a consistent version of the Bible. So, I mean, um, whether that's the ESV, this, which is what we read here, and then the prayer, the Psalms that we do uh, come from the Book of Common Prayer. So, the Book of Common Prayer has a distinct translation of the Psalms um, that you know, goes back to the Reformation era, the creation of the Book of Common Prayer. You can ask Father Jonathan about all that. But the, the main thing would be to, to have a consistent um, form of Scripture because it's the consistency of it that helps you memorize it. And having the same form, even I, ideally you have, you use literally the same physical book to memorize it because if you're one of those people that's like, I know where that is on the page, right? You, when you learn... This is especially the case, like, this is why, like, Psalm 23, regardless of whatever translation you use, you know, it's like, no, <laughs> I'm going back to the Lord is my shepherd I shall not want. Because there's, there's something that's been very powerful in shaping the language of our culture uh, in those, and there's, there's something really good about this, and that when you have the same, this is why um, uh, when medieval monks talk about those are the masters of memorizing scripture because they would literally memorize the whole scripture. They would talk about having it on the same, using this, like it's on the same place in the same book because that's, that's all part of what's going to help you memorize and read and inwardly digest the scriptures. Um, and I, I, talk, I lament about this way too much, but the opposite of this is scrolling it on your phone, right? Scrolling scripture on your phone it becomes all a blur, and that is not going to help you <laughs> memorize and internalize scripture, right? It all begins to look the same. It's just an infinite sort of scroll kind of experience of reading, and that's going to shape a very different habit of reading scripture than reading scripture in the same sort of physical artifact, right? So that's my... You, asked, you, you, you allowed me that, that, that digression because you said the word opinion, and so that, that opened up that, that cascade, and so I apologize for that, but there it is. <laughs> yeah. Okay, let's, uh, let's keep going um, a bit. Let's go to this next section on prayer. Question 233. Are there different ways to pray? Yes. Prayer can be private or public, liturgical or extemporaneous, spoken or silent. Okay, and so the key here is just that prayer can be anything and everywhere. <laughs> you know, we're developing a rule of prayer. We're thinking about how to make prayer regular. Um, that is both limiting in some sense, but it's also to say you can make anything a part of a rule of prayer. So prayer can be spoken or silent. Um, they, the scriptures point here, that first Samuel passage there, 
that's pointing to Hannah, the mother of Samuel. This is a, a classic. We're talking, if we're thinking about biblical themes and motifs, you have a barren woman <laughs> praying uh, to God. Um, and uh, the scriptures talk about her praying silently in, in her heart. And the priest Eli says, is that woman drunk? Like, what is she doing over there? Um, but what becomes apparent is that she's, she's praying. And this is a devout prayer, and God hears this prayer. And um, patristic writers will pick this up all the time, and they'll say, you know, the Pharisees pray out loud and publicly and this sort of thing, but you know, God's everywhere. God's everywhere present. God hears you in, in silence, in the heart. Um, and the Holy Spirit cries out in our hearts, right? So there's silent as well as, as public prayer. What we do here in church every week, we pray publicly. Uh, we pray liturgically, right? We have set forms of prayers, and we also have extemporaneous prayers. You can pray to God again. What's in the heart? What is, what is it you feel? You don't have to get in the right mood to pray. You can come to God as you are. Pray as you are. Um, so there's a wide range of, of what constitutes prayer within this rule of prayer. And question 234, what types of prayer are in the Lord's Prayer? The Lord's Prayer includes praise, petition, intercession, and confession to God. So we're in this section, the, the broader section we're in, developing a rule of prayer, is within this the Lord's Prayer. We've been going through the Lord's Prayer petition by petition. Um, and we've talked about the prayer, the Lord's Prayer, as the pattern of prayer. That's the kind of language that, that the Catechism uses. The Lord's Prayer is the pattern of prayer. Well, this means that the Lord's Prayer is not the only thing you pray, but it's the kind of prayer that shapes other forms of prayer. And so within even just the Lord's Prayer, we'll see lots of different ranges of, of modes of prayer, different kinds of speech uh, to, to God. And so the next several questions are going to go through each of these. Let's go to question 235. What is praise? In praise, I glorify and adore God for his holiness, his sovereign rule over all, and his salvation given in Christ. So praising God, this is one of the first languages that uh, prayer helps us cultivate, is praising God for who God is, God's character, um, and his work, we, what he does. Um, in, in the Lord's Prayer, we see this in God's name being made holy, right? We pray for God's name to be made holy. Um, we are praising God for who he is. This is the what sort of the first and kind of fundamental thing that prayer shapes us to do is turn our attention to God, right? We want to be looking towards God and God's work in salvation and God's work in Christ. So praise, this is just a, one of the most basic uh, fundamental things that we, that we encounter in, in prayer. We learn to praise God. Let's keep going. Question 236. What is petition? In petition, I make requests to God on my own behalf for his provision and protection. And so if praise is 
praying about God or praying to God about God, um, God's mercy, God's character, God's love, His power, sovereignty, all of this. Um, we praise God, but we also, we're allowed, we're invited to petition God. So petitioning God is about asking God for things. Things for our own behalf, um, as well as for um, provision, for protection. We ask for our basic needs. This is what we see in the Lord's Prayer when we ask for, for daily bread, right? Um, we ask for God's we ask for our basic needs uh, to be met. Whatever we experience in life, the most basic uh, needs that we have, all of those are open to us asking for God. There's nothing sort of, God doesn't say, oh, that's too trivial of a thing to ask for. Uh, if, why don't you ask me for something good, like, you know, uh, healing in, in Russia, right? Ask for something big. Don't bother me with your trifles about... Um, you know, you didn't get a job or something like that. Come on. You know, now God doesn't say this. God says whatever is, is on your heart, whatever your, your needs are, whatever your desires are, bring those to God. Nothing is sort of off limits um, to pray about to God. At the same time, we ask God for things. We ask God for our, for our basic needs. But in learning to pray, if we think about prayer as a, a form of pedagogy, a form of teaching, we're also asking for our desires to be changed, right? So we may come to God asking for uh, the downfall of my colleague who took my great idea, right? But God doesn't want you to stay in a state of vengeance uh, and retribution uh, for your neighbor, right? God wants you to desire to love your neighbor, right? But, as, but how, does that, how does that happen? Do you have to like wait until you love your neighbor before you can pray? No, the transformation is in the prayer, right? In learning to pray, and again, we see this in the, in the Psalms. The Psalms make you, think, make you say some things that you might be very uncomfortable saying. <laughs> they, they pray for more vengeance than I think we would be comfortable uh, praying for uh, today, you know? Psalm 137 is the sort of classic uh, case point on this. You pray for some ugly things about your, uh, your enemy's children. Um, however, it's in that prayer. Again, the part of the process of learning to pray is about learning not only to just get your needs met, it's about learning to transform your, your very desires. Um, so when we're thinking about prayer, uh, petitionary prayer in particular, asking God for things, um, we're thinking about basic, our basically creature, creaturely needs but we're also thinking about the transformation of our desires coming into to life with God. Okay, question 237. What is intercession? In intercession, I make requests to God on behalf of others, the church, and the world. So this is where we learn intercession, interceding, praying on behalf of another, right? So there's often a time in, in the daily office for this. There's a time set aside for praying for the needs of others. We, uh, petitioning tends to be more of my needs, my desires. Interceding is more in praying for the needs of those around us, whether those that we know, our friends, our family, church members, as well as for those around the world. Right? We, we do this in the prayers of the people. Right? This is a sort of 
the, our church's embodiment of intercessory prayer. We pray for the needs of all those around the world. It's in praying for the needs of others that we learn to be the body of Christ. Right? This is the very formation of, of the church as God's people is in learning to pray to God on behalf of others. This, again, this is how we actually, this is how we come into being the church. This is one of the fundamental acts of being the body of Christ is praying on behalf of others. And then we'll finish with this one. What, uh, question 238. What is confession? In confession, I acknowledge my sins in repentance before God and receive his forgiveness. So we see this here in the Lord's Prayer. We ask for forgiveness for ourselves as we forgive others. There's this act of confession that's sort of built into the Lord's Prayer, and that's extended in what we, again, what we say in the liturgy um, as confession and absolution. We acknowledge our sins. We put our sins up. We put them up before the Lord and ask God to to heal them. We ask for healing. Um, so in confession, as a, as a form of prayer, we're learning to, um, to live into the calling of humility. We're learning to, to say we are not our own, right? But everything that we have, we have because it's been gifted to us in Christ. Um, and so this prayers of confession are often be very cleansing, very, very therapeutic, right? All, all these things, but, but ultimately this is transforming our, our desires, transforming who we are uh, before the Lord. Um, so we'll continue next time with other forms of prayer. Um, there's, again, lots of forms of prayer. A good, a good book on this, there's a book by um, Richard Foster, I think just called Prayer, and he, and he outlines sort of so, so many modes of prayer, and, uh, and in doing so, gives you sort of a, he's like an artist that gives you lots of different colors to paint from, right? When you, when you have the, the language to, to be thinking, what are these different ways of praying? This isn't just telling you more stuff that you need to do. This is saying, basically another way of saying that all of life, all that we do, all that we feel, all that we experience, all that we encounter in others, all of life can be brought into the presence of God. All of life can be prayed. Right? Um, questions on, on this before we, before we depart? We'll have a little bit more time next week uh, to talk more about prayer and liturgy. But anything on the burning hearts right now? Okay, good. Well, uh, we'll begin liturgy in about 15 minutes. Okay, thank you.